great. Well, good morning, ZPC. Whenever I read that story to the kids, I always think to myself at the very ending where it says they walked out to their favorite place, the Olive Garden, I always think, man, they love them some breadsticks, and who can blame them, really, right? Well, sisters and brothers, uh, as we've talked about several times uh, over our kind of jaunt across the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, we uh, as a staff had to kind of uh, decide what, a st- what part of the story exactly to focus on. And, and so we decided we could either focus on uh, the washing of Jesus' feet or, um, or the, the Lord's Supper. And uh, when we talked about washing Jesus's, or Jesus washing the feet, one of the ideas was that that'd be great. Then, you know, maybe Jerry could stand up here and he could wash people's feet and that would be excellent. And so uh, we chose uh, the, the Lord's Supper instead of that. So, and by we, uh, I mean I um, chose that. Maybe there will be another time for that. Um, and, and Scott can be the pastor. Let's... Um, So we are going to look over the Gospel of Mark today, chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. And this is the story of of the Last Supper, uh, though omitting, uh, Mark does not talk about the washing of the feet here. um, But let us uh, open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts to these words. Mark writes, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and say to him, Say to one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one to not have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never eat or again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Brothers and sisters and Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, uh, beautiful sunshine and the warmth that is sure to come. And we pray, Lord, that you would illumine us today. Help us to understand and to know more deeply what it is that you would say to us through these words, through this story and your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the kind of interesting things about how we in the church today kind of deal with Scripture and, and deciding what to read and what to preach on is, is that oftentimes or frequently we have particular passages that we reserve for particular days. So, for instance, uh, on Christmas Eve, of course, we always want to talk about one of the, the birth narratives, right? So we talk about the story about Jesus being born or the angel coming to Mary, and, and that seems good and right. We could talk about that in August or September but it, it just it wouldn't it wouldn't feel right probably or or here in a couple of weeks right three weeks we'll talk about Easter of course and we'll talk about the resurrection of the Lord and that's a that's a key time of course and we could talk about that whenever but usually we save it for Easter Sunday but we could also of course uh, think about that when it comes to this particular passage because this is not a passage that I have ever preached on on a Sunday morning or one that I can ever recall hearing preached on a Sunday morning because usually this particular story is reserved for what night Monday Thursday, right? And so usually it's kind of a smaller group. It's dark outside. We come in, we're very reflective, which is good and right, but we don't usually talk about it on Sunday morning. So it's a, it's a little bit odd to talk about it on a day like today when, when we usually we'd wait at least a couple more weeks. But this is where we are with the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so perhaps it gives us an opportunity to look at this story in a little bit different light than what we typically do. Maybe it allows us to expound on it a bit more than we usually would. It starts out, of course, by talking about the fact that this is the first day of unleavened bread. In other words, this is the beginning of Passover. And it's kind of interesting the way this story starts because it almost feels a little bit like Jesus is playing the role of Godfather here, doesn't it? Or not Godfather, Son, God's Son, if you will. But you know what I'm saying. It's a little Godfatherish, don't you think? I mean, maybe I have probably just too much time on my hands, but this is what I think. When, when the disciples come up to him, right, and they're like, you know, what should we do? How should we prepare? And he's like, all right, here's what you do. You're going to go into a town. And you're going to see a guy. And the guy's going to have some water with him. And he's going to go, and wherever he goes, you go. You go into that room, and when you go into that place, you say, hey, the teacher wants to know where he's going to have his Passover. And he's going to show you this big room. And it's going to be furnished and prepared. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens, right? And so Jesus, the Godfather here, right, he sets it all up, right, and everything is ready, and it's just as it's supposed to be. I mean, he knows what's happening. And so he goes in, and there they are, and the whole group is gathered together. All the fellas are hanging around, and they are eating at Passover, and in some ways, this is an extremely extraordinary kind of occasion. In other ways, it's, it's somewhat ordinary. And what I mean by that is it's extraordinary because it's a high holiday, of course. It's a holy day for the Jewish people. But, but it's also kind of ordinary in the fact that all the disciples would have known exactly what was going to happen, right? They've been celebrating Passover since they were knee-high to a grasshopper. They, 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 they know what's going to be coming. And so it's not that extraordinary, but it's still special. 
And of course, you probably, many of you, perhaps most of you, or all of you even know what happens at the, at the Passover meal. And I don't want to go into great detail on it, but I'll just describe a few things. Uh, uh, first, of course, a Passover, as we talked about briefly last Sunday, is a celebration, a celebration of, of the fact of when the, um, when the Israelites escaped the slavery of the Egyptians. And, and, and one of the Jewish laws was that you could only celebrate it with if you had at least 10 people there, right? So you had to have at least 10 people. So this was a communal kind of activity, right? In fact, usually the celebration was much larger than that. And they would come in and they would begin. And so you would begin by, by drinking a glass of red wine. Usually it was red, kind of symbolizing the blood. And so you would drink the red wine, and then you would, then you would begin to eat a few things, right? You would, uh, you would start by typically taking some kind of vegetable, maybe parsley, and you would dip it in, in salt water, which would remind you of crossing over the Red Sea. And then you would have some unleavened bread, right? Kind of like crackers, if you will, with no yeast in it. That kind of symbolized the fact that, that they needed a bread that was going to be done quickly because they had to hurry out of Egypt in order to escape the Egyptians. Um, then, they would, uh, then they would have, um, let's see, what's next? Then they would have some kind of herb, right? Perhaps like a, a, a kind of bitter herb, like horseradish, that would, uh, that would symbolize the bitterness of slavery. And then they would, they would eat something, like a, not something, they would eat goat or lamb that had been sacrificed that very day in Jerusalem. And then they would, uh, then, then they would have another glass of red wine. And, and then whoever was leading that day, in this case it would probably be Jesus, whoever the head of the household would, would begin to tell the story of the Exodus and about this great story of God's deliverance. And then they would have another glass of red wine, and then they would say prayers and, 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 and say grace, if you will, and then they would have another glass of red wine, and then they, would, then they would sing a song, sing a hymn. Usually they would go through the hymn, Psalms 115 through 118. So that's kind of the scene, that's what, and that's what the disciples were there, and there are, of course, other details, but basically that's it. It's a large meal with a large gathering, with a lot of eating and drinking. So here they are as a part of that, and everything is just as it should be. And again, what they were expecting, when all of a sudden, Jesus kind of says something that's a bit odd. He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. To which the disciples make this kind of fascinating response, which is they say to him, surely not I which I've always kind of found to be kind of interesting because it's not a statement. It's not saying, well, it's not going to be me. It is, all, it is a question. They don't think it's them, but they aren't quite sure, which I think is remarkably transparent and mature on behalf of the disciples, that after three years, if they have learned nothing, it is that when push comes to shove, they very well might be the person or the people who betray or deny Jesus in some form or fashion, right? So they may not think they will, but they also know there's a chance, right? Surely not I. But then something else that's kind of interesting that I hadn't thought about until I read something by Ben Witherington this week, and he said, you know, what else is interesting about that line is that, well, they seem to be more concerned about the fact that surely they're not going to be blamed than they are 
that something bad is going to happen to Jesus, right? So what they say is not, no, say it's not so. No, nothing bad can happen. What they are first and foremost concerned about is making sure that it's not them that screws up. I mean, this is very much like our, 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 our Adelie, our little three-year-old. She turned four recently, but, 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 but who, would, who has frequently, right? She'd be in another room. You'd all of a sudden hear her baby sister Winnie crying, and you knew that Adelie had done something, and she would rush in, right? And all she says is, it wasn't me, or it was an accident, or I didn't do anything. Meanwhile, her sister is over there weeping and is in pain, but she cares little about her actual sister who's hurting and much more with making sure that she's not to blame. And it's fascinating to me how similar disciples then and even now are to the actions of a three-year-old child. And so we grow, we see the disciples growing and maturing, and yet we see them, of course, as often is the case for all of us, wrestling, being more concerned with self-preservation than we are with the Christ. We don't know for sure what's going on after that. We don't know the mood. Nothing is told to us. We can imagine, of course, that there is a bit more of a somber tone to things. Perhaps the, the wine is, is, is drunk with a little bit more fervor even at this point not knowing what's to come, what's happening. And then Jesus makes this interesting twist, if you will. Because all of a sudden then, he begins and he takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he tells them, this is my body. And likewise then, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is my blood poured out for you. And he he invites them to eat of it. And he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God has come. Jesus kind of takes this this night that had been used forever to kind of celebrate the rescue of of, of the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians, and he's saying that there is a greater rescue, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, that is on its way for all people. Then they sing the psalm, again, probably the 118th psalm, and they go out. And the scene ends, the lights dim. This is a story that, of course, gives to us the Lord's Supper, as we've already mentioned. And and it's kind of significant because, of course, we only have, in the Reformed tradition at least, of which we are a part, we only have two sacraments, right? Those sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so this passage, even though, like I said, we don't talk about it a lot on Sunday mornings, it's clearly pretty important to us. This, this action and this fourfold action of, of Jesus taking and, and blessing and breaking and giving. Communion is important for us. And yet i got to be honest with you, by and large, uh, when I was a kid especially, but even into my young adulthood, I never enjoyed communion. And in fact, when I would walk in, and I can remember this very distinctly, when I would walk in and I would see the Lord's table set up and I saw the, the communion trays and the, the, you know, the bread up there, I always got instantly depressed because I knew it meant it was going to be a long service, right? And I just thought, oh, can we just cut that part out, right? And so once a month, right, I would come in and I would think, oh, 
And honestly, then, as I got older, it changed some, but there was still a little bit of that in me, quite frankly. Now, I began to grow a little bit as I got older, and I began to see, okay, well, you know what? This is a nice time for us to kind of reflect, and it is a good time for me to just kind of have a little bit of quiet and, and to think about my own life and perhaps those places where I've fallen short or where I've done things I shouldn't have or didn't do things I should have, and, and perhaps to kind of think a little bit about, you know, the gratitude that we may have to Christ for what he had done. But, but by and large, then as soon as I was done eating the bread and drinking the cup, then it was over and the Lord's Supper was just done and I didn't think about it for another month. And I have a feeling I'm probably not alone in that. In fact, I, I'm, I'm quite guaranteed but that, that some of the times when, when we bring this table down and, and, and I say take and bless and break and give just like Jesus did, that, 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 that perhaps you enjoy it. And, but, but, but more than likely, by the time you've swallowed that last drink of grape juice, you have moved on and probably don't even think about it again until a month from now. When you're back at the first Sunday and there it is again. And i got to tell you, that kind of bothers me a little bit. Not just that you would do it, but that I would do it as well. I mean, if this is an important sacrament, then surely it should matter to us more than just on the first Sunday of the month. And so I, I began to kind of wrestle with that. And I began to think about that even more, quite frankly, as, we were, um, as I was thinking about yesterday and our meeting with the inquirers. We had a great great meeting with the inquirers yesterday. We had almost 30 people who were kind of at least interested in becoming members, and so that was great, and we had many of them over, as I told you last week, to our house on, on, on Friday night, and um, man, it was exciting, um, and it was packed out. But it was remarkable, and they are good people, but one of the things, most of them, three or four of them are a little questionable, but by and large, they're pretty good. But one of the things that I always talk about on that Saturday morning is, the, is, is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And, and, and so, and in that passage, it's the beginning of the early church, right? And, and, uh, and so one of the things that that scripture passage says is that they were gathering together in one another's homes, right? And, and, and that they were breaking bread together. And so uh, scholars are always debating, right? They're always fighting and arguing over whether or not that breaking bread was, was what they were doing, you know, uh, was, was it communion? Was it a kind of a, a, a religious rite? Or was it just kind of eating together? We're just breaking bread together. We're just eating. And, and it's not, you know, it's just kind of regularly having dinner. And so they're always fighting about it. And, and Will Williman kind of says that, that, you know what, maybe that's the wrong question. Because the reality is, he says, is that this was a different world and, and, and that they were actually having church, by and large, in homes. And so there wasn't this great distinction between kind of what they would do up at the Lord's table, if you will, and what they would do at their own table. And I start thinking, well, well, perhaps really part of the problem, as ironic as it sounds, is the fact that we have made what we do on the first Sunday of the month here so special and so unique. We have special words that we say. We have a special table we use. We have special silverware or uh, uh, whatever the metalware is that we use. We have you do specific things like walk down or stay at your chair that we've made it so special and so unique that it is completely distinct and distinguished from anything else that we ever do throughout the week. And because of that, it loses some of its power. 
And so the question then is, if we are called, as we've said many times, is that what we're doing right here, right now, is practicing for what we are supposed to do when we go out, then how is what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, how is that practice for what we do when we go out throughout the week? So Eugene Peterson, who talks a lot about the Lord's Supper, says, you know what, maybe we can begin looking at this and taking the taking and the blessing and the breaking and the giving and begin to see that, not just in these special meals, but in the ordinary meals that we are having. And maybe in so doing, we will begin to see and experience Jesus in different ways. Maybe if we begin to see it as it happened originally with just 12 or 13 guys hanging out around a fairly ordinary table in a fairly ordinary room where Jesus was there in the midst of them, maybe we will begin to extend what we are doing at the Lord's table out throughout the whole week. So he says, maybe we can take the taking and the giving, part of the fourfold communion. And you know what that is? That's the sharing of a meal, especially when you're at your house, when you don't get your own little individualized meal, right? You get a bowl of green beans. And whose bowl of green beans are these? They're everybody's, right? Which is why, you know, if you like green beans and Aunt Myrtle takes a little bit more, you're a little bit angry. She's taking something from you, right? So we take and we give, right? And then we are broken. Clearly, this is a sacrifice of Jesus, right? But in every meal, there is sacrifice. And how often do we think about it like that? There is a sacrifice. If you had to pay for the meal, there's sacrifice in, in the work it took. There's sacrifice in whomever it was that was working the fields or out in the ocean to bring you the food. There's sacrifice with whomever it was that decided to make the food and then to to bring it to your table. And then, of course, there's the reality of the fact that, that we do this as a blessing, right? The blessed part of it, underneath the understanding that all of this belongs to God, that we should be thankful to God for all of it. And so the simple question is, what if Instead of just leaving this place and forgetting all about the Lord's Supper, what if we began to see and ask ourselves as we gather together and have meals with one another, is there something Eucharistic about this? Is there something about the Lord's table and what we are doing? And might we, if we really think through the taking and the blessing and the breaking and the giving, might we see Jesus differently? Might we see him at all? Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this. The reality is that sometimes a bowl of Fruit Loops is just a bowl of Fruit Loops. And I'm good with that. But I also think that there are a lot of opportunities that we as Christians are missing when we don't begin to ask ourselves whether or not we could have Eucharistic or Lord's Supper-like meals together or with others. And you all know that this is, you know, it doesn't take me long for you to know me, to know that this is a passion that I have, a passion for us to simply gather around tables and eat with one another. It doesn't seem like rocket science, and yet it does seem like so many of us are struggling with doing that. And the reason why it's so important to me, of course, is because of how it shaped my own life. 
right? I told you the story a year ago or so uh, about how when I was in Inverness, Scotland, and I decided to go visit a church, right? And, and maybe you were here, and I was a, a church visitor, right? And I walked in, and I was there. And then, of course, I do what every visitor wants to do, right? When it's over, I wanted to leave. I wanted to get out of there without anyone seeing me, without having to talk to anyone, right? And, and this guy came, and he said, oh, hey. And he started talking to me, and I didn't want him to. And, and then he said, hey, I, I know a guy that you should meet. And I said, no, really, I don't need to. And he said, no. And so I went, and then I, I met his whole family, right? Do you remember this? And I was with his family, and, and they said, well, let's get something to eat. And I thought, oh, man, okay, maybe they'll pay for it. And so we, you know, but we were in the car, and we weren't going to a restaurant. We were going to their home, and before you know it, we were at their home. And before you know it, we were gathered around a table. And before you know it, we were eating. And before you know it, we were drinking. And before you know it, we were breaking bread together. And before you know it, I saw Jesus in that meal. And as a part of that church, in a way that I have never experienced Jesus before. Simply because someone was willing to say, rather than leaving you alone, I am going to be with you and we are going to have a meal together. And because of that, we experienced Jesus. And I just think to myself, I know I sound like a 90-year-old curmudgeon. I really do, and I I feel like sometimes I'm just complaining about this fast-paced world we live in and fast food and how we're just going from one thing to another, and it makes me sound like I'm just grouchy. But I want you to know it's not actually that I'm being grouchy or complaining about it, per se. It is that I see an amazing opportunity for Christians an amazing opportunities to get back to the way things were in terms of people eating together and celebrating together and having food with one another and preparing meals with one another and seeing how often Jesus showed up, just like the road to Emmaus when two men were walking with what they thought was a stranger and they invited him to a meal and Jesus took or the stranger took and blessed and broke and gave and they saw Jesus. Just an ordinary meal, any ordinary meal. But if we take the time to think about gathering together, what might we experience if we do that rather than just always eating on the rush or just having whatever we can to fill the hunger pain? What if we see it as an opportunity to put leaves in the Lord's table and extend it to whatever table it is that you are eating at? Small acts where we might experience Jesus. And so this morning as we thought about, you know what, we're going to do communion. This is not the first Sunday of the month, but we're living on the edge, right? And we're doing this on the third Sunday of the month as well, right? And we thought, you know what, we're not going to be able to make this just like a meal, but maybe we could do things a little differently. And so Betsy Howden, she, uh, she came up with this idea. So Again, if you don't like it, she's back there. And so we said, you know what? And this is actually much more similar to the way John Calvin used to do it. What we're going to ask you to do, and this may be a little bit like mayhem, right? But mayhem is much more like the meals we typically have than the Lord's Supper, is it not? And so here's what we're going to ask you to do, right? Don't get up yet, but our servers, whoever's serving, you can certainly get up now and come to whatever table it is uh, where you are called to go, right? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to find a table that's nearby you, okay? There's about seven tables that are around here. 
And you're going to come up to it, and someone's going to kind of help you to say, okay, you six come, and you six people are going to gather around here. And someone is going to offer up a bread. We have unleavened bread uh, that we're going to use, and they're going to say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And they'll hold it, and you just break off a piece, right? And when everyone has a piece, then you eat it, okay? And then they're going to offer you the cup, right? And you can drink the cup. You can wait. uh, Just drink it whenever you get it if you want it. But don't leave yet. You stay there. And you're looking at each other. I want you around here like you would at a typical meal, right? You're not all just kind of staring off here reflecting. No, I want you to look at one another just as Jesus and the disciples would have been looking at one another, right? And then before you leave, they will say one other thing to you. They are going to say, take, bless break, give, and then you can go. And you can go back to your seat, wherever it is. Again, I know it may be a little bit chaotic, and some of you don't like that, but if you don't like it, then don't come over to my house for dinner, okay? The one thing I can assure you is if you don't eat it all, right, we won't make you stay up here forever. But, but come up and participate in this way as a reminder of trying to help shape us into a people who say we are practicing, not just doing something that we do here and then forget for a month, but what we're doing here can be taken out into the world of which we are a part. So let us pray. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this bread and this cup. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Help us, God, to see how you are with us now as we take this bread and this cup, but how you are with us even when we go out into our own homes, into restaurants or wherever else it is that we go. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus, as you have already heard on that night, took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which has been broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Whenever you drink of it, you do this in remembrance of me. And now, sisters and brothers in Christ, I invite you to come forward or go back wherever the table is nearest to you, to eat and to drink. And if you notice that somebody near you may not be able to stand up or may not be able to come out, I invite you to look for them just as you would if you were at your own home and to perhaps take back something for them to eat or something for them to drink. So come forward and let us participate in this supper together.